Turn again uh, with me in your Bibles, please, to the end of chapter 1 of Colossians. Uh, we're reading from verse 24 uh, to verse 5. We'll just read it again together. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those at Laodicea, for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Amen. Uh, I remember when we were doing our last Christianity Explored course in Sky. Uh, how for one woman who had had no church background, there was a great uh, breakthrough when she saw the difference between the Gospels and the Epistles. She looked at Ephesians and she realized that that this was a very different kind of uh, book because it was intended as a letter to people, which is different from the Gospel, which was an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And that uh, made it easier for her to understand what was going on. And for all of us, it's important to, to keep that to the fore when we're in a study of the epistles. This was a letter that was written for a purpose. It was written into a certain context. There was a purpose behind Paul writing. And the context of the Colossians is that in the church there, which was a church that Paul had never visited, it had been evangelized by his friend Epaphras, himself a convert of Paul's time in Ephesus, and into this church had come a group of people who were bringing a, a strain of Jewish teaching or Jewish influence teaching, which was adding to the simplicity of the gospel and they were saying, in effect, well, we're really pleased that uh, you've come to trust in Jesus. But, you know, we have actually, we've gone up a step. We are on a higher plane. And if you, would want, if you want to be on a higher plane also, then you need to, to add to the, the ABCs that you have learned from Paul. Uh, you need to avoid certain food. And you need to keep certain special days and you need to give proper veneration to the angels. That seems to be some of the things that they were commending in Colossae. And Paul's reason for writing the letter to the Colossians 
uh, amongst other things, is to, to say to them, no, that's wrong. Don't listen to people who say you need Jesus plus, which is the great heresy. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. You don't supplement Jesus. Now we saw in uh, the last two sermons that Paul has sought to show this by showing how Jesus is supreme in all things. He is supreme and therefore he's sufficient. He's all that we need. Uh, he's supreme first of all in creation. He is the creator and all things were made by him and for him. And he is the head of the church. He's the head of the body. And he is supreme in salvation. And last time we saw how he was reminding the Colossians of what they had been. They had been alienated from God and had enmity in their minds towards God. But now they had been reconciled through Christ. And it's none other than this gospel that Paul has preached which has effected this change. And this gospel has been preached all over the world and it's bearing fruit. And this gospel says you don't add to Jesus. Jesus is all you need. You never supplement Jesus. You don't look elsewhere for Jesus. You don't look for more extravagant experiences which are somehow going to bring you up to a higher level of spirituality. Jesus is all we need. And now Paul moves from speaking about Jesus and his supremacy and his sufficiency to talking about himself and his own labours. And that might seem strange at first, but the purpose is the same. Uh, he's saying effectively to them, do you think that I would really have given myself so unstintingly, unsparingly, and also kept back something from you that you needed to know? I'm telling you, my purpose is to bring you before God at the end, complete in him, mature, perfected. I, I wouldn't hold back anything that was for your greater good. And so, as Paul shares his heart uh, of what it is to be a gospel minister, this is what he's trying to get across. He's trying to, to reinforce the the. the, the the great length that he has gone to ensure that these Christians in Colossae will be perfected, fully rounded, mature Christians. And that there's no uh, secret ingredient somewhere that they've got to search out and find. And at the same time, as we read these verses, there, there's a model, isn't there, for us as to how we share the gospel. Because all of us, in another sense, in a secondary sense, are gospel ministers. I'm a gospel minister, having been set apart for that. But all of us are ministers in the sense of being servants of the word, servants of the Lord. And our task, if we're Christians, is to share the good news with others in however way we can. And so, as we see Paul opening up his heart to us in the word tonight, we notice that there are differences. We are not apostles, and Paul was an apostle, and that does make a big difference. None of us have been commissioned to share the, the mystery uh, hidden for generations and now revealed that the Gentiles are included in God's plan. That was Paul's momentous task. But we share with Paul the same function of being people who go out into a world that needs Jesus and have Jesus to share with them. So what is it? What are, are the characteristics that are mentioned here about this calling that all of us have? 
to, to be ministers of the gospel, to be servants of the gospel. Well, Paul tells us here that inevitably it involves suffering. If it's to be fruitful, it must be thoroughgoing. And it's a struggle. It involves hard work. These three things are what he stresses here. The suffering involved in the gospel. The thoroughgoing nature of gospel work. And the labor, the hard labor that's involved in spreading the gospel. Verse 24. I rejoice in what was suffered for you and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body which is the church. I wonder if as we read that you found that rather perplexing. Because it is strange at first, isn't it? Especially this idea of what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. How can he say that he has filled up what was lacking? In fact, how can he say that he did it for the Colossians uh, whom he has never met? This problem of there being anything lacking in Christ's afflictions in terms of his suffering something that we, we, we have to try and grapple with first of all because Paul has been at great pains to say that there's nothing left uh, from what Christ has done for us there's no gap that we have to fill up uh, in our salvation Jesus has paid it all uh, when Jesus cried out from the cross it is finished he was declaring that the debt had been paid sin's debt had been paid uh, that there was nothing, uh, there was no residue left for us to, to try and meet from our own resources. And the idea that you inflict suffering on yourself in order to achieve salvation is something which is a, a Roman Catholic idea. Something which is not found in the gospel. Inflicting pain on yourself or uh, undergoing the pains of purgatory to be refined through that. And so what does Paul mean here when he says that he fills out what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Well, the, the answer seems to lie with the idea that there is a, a union between Jesus and the church. In verse 18, Paul wrote uh, about Jesus. He is the head of the body. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So, Jesus, now as to his physical body, is in heaven, at the right hand of the majesty on high. But we, his body, are still here, in this world. Jesus, in his physical body, has paid all the price of sin. He has, his suffering on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. But we his body. Still on earth. Continue to suffer. And there will be. A set amount of suffering. Which the church on earth will suffer. Before Jesus returns again. These sufferings don't bring about. Salvation. They don't bring about atonement for our sins. But they're part and parcel. Of being a Christian. In a fallen world. The body of Christ then is suffering. 
And Paul would never forget the words of Jesus that, that day when he was floored on the Damascus road. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The striking thing was that Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my disciples? Why are you persecuting me? And it's not just in the sense that Jesus is saying that he's taking it personally. But Jesus is saying, when you touch my church, you touch me. The church is my body. And therefore in persecuting my body, you're persecuting me. When you strike it, the church, you're striking at Christ himself. And so Paul says, I'm participating in his sufferings. I'm part of the body. And therefore I'm suffering as part of Christ's suffering. When Ananias came to restore uh, Saul's sight and give him his commission to be a herald of the gospel to the Gentiles, uh, he came with words that Saul uh, would be told. Uh, Ananias had been told, <coughs> he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Paul was commissioned to suffer. And his suffering was part of the suffering of Christ's body. And so he can say, I am filling up what's still lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Here is a first application then. We cannot shrink from the simple fact that to be a Christian, to be an authentic Christian, which must mean a Christian who shares his or her faith, we will suffer for it. We will suffer for Christ. Jesus tells us, <clears throat> if they call the master of the household Beelzebub, how much more the members of the household? But notice that Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice. I rejoice in what I suffered for you. That's the, the persistent note, isn't it? Uh, Jesus uh, tells us, uh, rejoice. Uh, when men uh, speak evil of you, persecute you, rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Paul says, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. It's a productive process. Uh, suffering for Christ uh, is, is like the, the, the birth pains. There's joy that overshadows the pain. So we say with Paul, I rejoice in what was suffered for you. Jesus and the service of Jesus gives true satisfaction. There is real joy in sharing the gospel, which means that the suffering that is inevitably there is as nothing compared to the joy that is derived from his service. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. We've been thinking a lot about David Livingston uh, in this uh, 200th anniversary of his birth, and Livingston, uh, the point when he came back uh, to, to Britain, uh, before his... his uh, final uh, exploration 
was addressing students in Cambridge and they wanted to know about uh, the great sacrifices he had made and the suffering of being a, an African missionary. And this is what David Livingston said to these Cambridge students on December 4th, 1857. For my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It's emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common convenience and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to think, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. suffer for the gospel and the gospel that we're called to serve involves thoroughgoing work might seem a strange thing to say, might seem a strange thing to stress that we must be thoroughgoing when we're about the business of God but much gospel work especially today is pretty superficial and people look for quick results Quick decisions for Christ. And it's a superficial message that's often proclaimed. With a lukewarm commitment as a result. True gospel work will share the character of Paul's gospel work. As we have it here. Gospel work isn't discharged when we simply have orthodox preaching on the Sunday and we can tick the box and say we're being faithful. Paul speaks about proclaiming uh, with uh, a rigor, uh, proclaiming uh, fully the gospel. I have become, in verse 25, its servant, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. It's actually a verb. This, the fullness is actually a, a verb. And it speaks of dis discharging something completely. Uh, it's literally to fill or make full or complete or carry to completion. So the idea is a, a full-blooded presentation of the gospel. The idea is... Not simply dumping the gospel facts before people, but dynamically preaching the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Demonstrating the gospel by acts of mercy, showing fully the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what's in mind here. 
Uh, but the content is also in view also. The content isn't to be superficial. Paul speaks about it being a revealed truth. He speaks of the mystery kept hidden for ages and now disclosed. It's an open secret. God's plan is an open secret. A mystery made known amongst the Gentiles who were once excluded but they are now included. You see, Paul knew that there were some teachers at Colossae and they were speaking about this secret ingredient, uh, this, this key that they had to the code. They were privileged. They had access to the inner room. And Paul says it's an open secret. God has made it clear. And it's a rich message. It's glorious. It's rich because it's about Jesus Christ in you. The hope of glory, verse 27. So the, the content of what we share in this thoroughgoing presentation of the gospel is of Jesus Christ, who by faith comes into our lives and unites us to his work on the cross and gives us the hope of heaven. That's what people need to know. That's what the, the gospel proclamation is all about. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28, Paul's still speaking here about the, the manner of his proclaiming Christ. We proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Admonishing. Do we think about uh, gospel preaching in terms of admonishing? Well, Paul says that that's part and parcel of what proclamation is. It's partly admonishing. And it's a, a word here, nutheo which means to confront people with truth so that their lifestyle changes. It's confronting people with the truth, looking for a change of lifestyle. So there can't be any place in gospel proclamation for doctrine that just hangs in the air. You know, abstractions, which have got nothing to do with the people, the way people live. Gospel preaching must be applied to lives must be intended to change the way people live. New Testament epistles are full of this kind of work of admonishing. And it's interesting that when Paul admonishes, when he confronts people with the truth, uh, looking for lifestyle change, uh, he often reminds people of Jesus and, and his way of living. Romans 15.2 Please your neighbor rather than yourself. For even Christ did not please himself. Romans 15.7 Accept one another just as Christ also accepted you. Colossians 3.13 Forgive just as Christ has forgiven you. See, this is, this is admonishing. Uh, confronting people with gospel instructions. With Jesus as our pattern. That's very different from some kinds of, of modern counselling. Uh, some kinds of modern counselling are called non-directional counselling. So people aren't told what they must do, but they're given the uh, encouragement to uh, work things out themselves, to find their own path. That's not admonishing. Admonishing is putting before people the demands of the gospel and calling Challenging them to change behavior. Teaching with all wisdom. We shouldn't really make the, the big distinction that we often do between uh, teaching and gospel preaching. 
Gospel preaching must have teaching in it. There must be doctrinal content. People's minds must uh, be filled with truth if they're to respond to the gospel. Teaching means that we aim for a, a fellowship of people who know the truth so they instinctively know what it is to honor God. People who will value doctrine instead of disparaging doctrine as so often happens today. Doctrine is thought of as something that's heavy and unattractive and repels people. But the New Testament encourages us to value uh, doctrine. Uh, we want to be a people who are hungry for the unsearchable riches of Christ. This deep, deep wealth that there is in knowing Christ. And this teaching is to be done with all wisdom. And in the Bible, wisdom is knowing how to achieve the best end by the best means. So there is always a best way of achieving this goal. And it may be that uh, teaching is best done informally. Uh, and in the Old Testament, you have examples of that. Fathers instructing their children as they walked along uh, through the field or as they sat down at mealtime. And sometimes that's the best way of doing it. Or in a classroom type situation or where there's interaction, where there's group uh, discussion and so on. With all wisdom means that we teach effectively the truth of the word of God. And the aim is to have uh, Christians who are mature believers. Not people whose lives are simply touched in some departments and not in others. But people who are being changed by the whole of the gospel. Whose lives are truly in line with the truth of the gospel. It's thoroughgoing work. It can't be done superficially. It is thoroughgoing work. And because it is thoroughgoing, it requires effort. It will be a struggle. No gain without pain. No gain without pain. Now that's a common saying, isn't it? We, we believe that in, in uh, everyday work, everyday life. If you're going to achieve anything that is worth anything, you'll have to put effort in because there is no gain without pain. Why then should it be any different in Christian work? Yet we sometimes think that it will be. Sometimes think that it will be. We sometimes subconsciously at least think that if we only preach the gospel faithfully, then all we have to do is have the doors uh, unlocked and people will come. And that is the way that God is going to, to bless. But it's not like that. I think Wesley's hymn... Uh, convey something of the struggle that Paul's speaking of here, uh, soldiers of Christ arise. From strength to strength go on, wrestle and fight and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. There's a realism there about the effort that is involved in gospel work. And so Paul says, to this end I labor and the word again is interesting because the word has a connotation of a deep weariness. As though you had been beaten. You've been beaten by a stick and, and you're that weary. Sometimes it's used uh, 
for physical tiredness. The, the, the tiredness that you feel uh, if you've been outside doing physical work the whole day and you come home and every muscle is sore. That's the labor that Paul is speaking about here. And then he speaks about struggling uh, with all his energy. And the word is agonizomai. And you can see it's the word we get agony from. He agonizes over this work. He's in an agony uh, for the gospel. It's an extreme word. It's the same in verse 1 of chapter 2. I want you to know how much I am agonizing for you and for those at Laodicea. Now we need to hear these words from the apostle because I think, if you're like me, sometimes we think Paul is in a completely different uh, universe. He was an apostle and therefore, pardon me, it was different for him. People just got converted in their thousands because he was an apostle and it didn't really involve that much hard work. I mean, that would be unspiritual. He was a very spiritual man and so they just were converted. And we overlook the fact that there were these struggles, these agonies, these huge discouragements that Paul faced. Uh, the hard graft, the long hours, the careful preparation, dealing with difficult people, dealing with people that backslid, seeing no response to long periods of evangelistic work. This was all part and parcel of Paul's missionary work. But notice, and this is so important, verse 29. In all of this talk about suffering and, and agonizing and laboring, Paul says, to this end I labor, struggling with all his energy. It's God's energy. That seems to me to be a, a very important element uh, in the balanced life that we're called to live as ambassadors for Christ. That in all the work he calls us to do, we're to work in his energy. Not in the arm of the flesh. Not striving with our own strength. But in his strength. In his strength. Paul can say in another place, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's his work. I've been reading uh, the memoir of one of the staff members of uh, the godly General uh, Stonewall Jackson, who was a, a Confederate general in the, the uh, U.S., the, the, the Civil War in the States. And uh, there was this little section that, that uh, caught my eye. At the, the Battle of Second Manassas, the, the Confederates had a great victory. They, they routed the, the Northern Army. And the writers describing a little scene where Stonewall Jackson and some of his staff are on a ridge and they're overlooking uh, the scene of victory and they're, they're reflecting on the, the strife and the cost of this victory. And this general says to, to Jackson, General Paxton, he says, this great victory, you know, it is the result of the hard work and the heroism and the dedication of our southern troops. Jackson immediately said, never forget this victory is the result of the power of Almighty God. He saw it for what it was, that the, that the, the power, the, the, the result had come from 
the sovereign God. So God is at work where we are at work. And we must work in God's strength. P.T. O'Brien, one of the commentators, says, if one asks the question, where is God powerfully at work, then in this context the answer would be, where Paul toils energetically. We work in God's strength. And therefore, we need to remember that. And whilst we give ourselves wholeheartedly to the gospel, we remember that it's his work. And we rest in him. We said earlier on that the, the hymn we sang, Jesus, I am resting, resting, in the joy of what thou art, was Hudson Taylor's hymn. And if ever anyone labored for the gospel, it was Taylor, pioneer missionary to China. Uh, first one who really adopted the practice of going native, of, of uh, becoming as closely as he could like the people he was reaching out to. And in moments of discouragement, uh, he needed to remind himself of the importance of resting on the Lord Jesus. Because if we don't, we burn out. We labor and we fight, but we must do it in his strength and learn to rest in him. And I know the, the psychological, the emotional release from the fact that all the work is in his name and he will give the fruit. And the purpose is to see in the end of the day uh, people who are, are solid, mature Christians. And we should be content with nothing less than that. A people that are happy and at one with themselves, encouraged in heart and united in love, verse 2. So that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. People who go deep in the faith, who have a, a love for the scriptures. People who are well taught, convinced of what they believe, and therefore they are not deluded. They'll not be deceived by fine sounding arguments. When Paul says uh, in the end, verse 5, that he's happy to see how orderly they are and how firm their faith in Christ is, then these are, are military words. They're words used of uh, military camps that were orderly, of, of a bulwark against the enemy that was a firm bulwark. Uh, Solid situations. People who know what they believe in. There's a great virtue uh, today thought of in being open-minded. G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind is the same as of opening the, the mouth, which is to shut it again. On something solid. May God grant us a willingness to suffer for the sake of the church, to commit to thoroughness in the proclamation of the gospel, and a readiness to labor, knowing that we work in His strength. Amen. May God bless to us.